Good morning and welcome to the Hub City Church. We're so glad you've decided to join us in worship this morning. As the Hub City Church, we exist to make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey the word of God. If you'd like to hear more about our vision, or if you're interested in joining our serve teams, community groups, or men's and women's ministries, you can visit our website, thehubcitychurch.org, or just text the word Hub City to 97000 and we'll follow up with you in the next few days. Ladies, we will not meet for women's ministry this upcoming Wednesday, October 25th. We hope to see you when we meet on the second Wednesday in November. God has been so faithful in continuing to grow our church body. To help accommodate those looking for seating, it would be super helpful to keep end seats open so our ushers are able to easily find seats for those coming into the service. Kids are always welcome in service, and we have a nursing mother's room with our service streaming live just outside the lobby to the left. Again, we're so glad you're here. Let's worship Jesus together. Hey, good morning once again. My name is Tad Anderson. I'm the uh, lead teaching pastor here at the Hub City Church, and we do welcome you. We're glad you're here to uh, worship Jesus with us this morning. I just have a, uh, a few announcements before we get started and get into the Word. Uh, the first one is, I just want to remind you guys, the men's camping trip is coming up on uh, Friday, November 10th. That is our first men's camping trip, and we will uh, aim to do manly stuff out there, uh, stuff with fire and meet, and uh, we'll also have the word. Uh, Lewis Miller, who is the uh, West Regional Catalyst from Florida Baptist Convention, will be there to give us an encouraging word, um, so it's going to be great. Uh, sign up for that. There is a, uh, there's a sign-up form online. If you go to our uh, Facebook page, you can see that, or if you're on uh, the Church Center app, you can find that in the Men's Ministry uh, group page. Uh, we are about uh, half, approaching halfway full on those registrations, so uh, make sure you register if you want to want to go and, and be there with us. It's ten dollars to secure your spot. Uh, it's going to be a really good time. Um, next thing, just really quickly, um, if you've been here with us for um, more than a year, then you know that uh, annually we do have a Thanksgiving outreach uh, every single year, and uh, we, typically we serve anywhere in the neighborhood of. Uh, 250 to 300 meals in our, here in our community in uh, different areas where there are people who uh, otherwise might not have a Thanksgiving meal. And so that has been a, a great gospel opportunity for us to um, just share the love of Jesus tangibly with you know, a warm meal, um, but also actually giving the gospel to, to the folks that we encounter. Uh, and so we do plan on doing that again this year. If you're wondering, that is the, the final uh, event on our fall schedule. And so we're, we're working through logistics on that. Um, I anticipate last year we also served uh, the Crestview Manor. I anticipate we'll do that. Also, um, we're kind of having several of our ministries converge here 
uh, talked with uh, the guidance counselor at Northwood Elementary School a few weeks ago. And so we'll, we'll put together some meals for some of those families that we serve with the, uh, the backpack program as well this year for Thanksgiving. So, man, just a really great opportunity. Uh, hope you guys will stay tuned and, and be a part of that. We'll have more details to come uh, about how you can do that, okay? Um, and the last thing is, just want to remind you guys of this cheesy little thing that we decided to do at the beginning of this year uh, to track uh, our evangelism and, and uh, invites to church. There's an evangelism tube back there. You see those green ping pong balls that says, come and see, go and tell. Uh, we do encourage you to continue uh, sharing the gospel, inviting uh, people to church to hear the gospel. If you do that, uh, you can help us as a church. We, you know, it is a little cheesy, you know, ping pong balls and a tube and all that. But uh, the reason we did that is because we do have goals as a church. We have an evangelism goal, and we want to know uh, how faithful we're being as a local body of Christ uh, to the Great Commission, which is kind of the main thing. I don't know if you've uh, gathered that from Jesus, but uh, kind of a big deal, you know, that we go, uh, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Uh, and so anyway, if, you, uh, if you're being faithful to do that, great. Uh, help us to track that as a church body so we know how we're, how we're doing, okay? Um, all right. Well, we are uh, three weeks into a, a new teaching series based out of the Old Testament book of Genesis. It's called that's messed up, and it's focused on the foundational gospel realities of sin and redemption. Uh, each week so far, uh, I've made it a point to reiterate why uh, we would base an entire series on different aspects of sin. And so, uh, just quick review here they are again. Number one, uh, the Bible is one unified story of how God rescues and redeems his people from their sin. Right? So if you don't get that, then really you're going to have a hard time grasping the message of Scripture. It's, it's crucial that you know that. Um, and then the, the second reason is that the, the deeper and more comprehensive our understanding of our own sin, the greater our humility and capacity uh, to love Christ and to cherish the gospel. Jesus tells us, he who has been forgiven little loves little, but he who has been forgiven much loves much. And so we want to do our best to wrap our minds around how much we have been forgiven in Christ. And we have to talk about sin to do that. Uh, and so I, I would even go so far as to say that a diminished view of the seriousness of sin cheapens the good news of the gospel. Okay. Uh, Jesus told the Pharisees in Luke chapter five, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay, so with that said, uh, this week we'll be talking about um, Abraham and Sarah. You may be aware that uh, Abraham is well known, not just in the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament as uh, some have called him the father of, of faith. In Romans 4, it says of Abraham... And no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. In Hebrews 11, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. And Sarah, in Hebrews 11, it says, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. 
Um, so these are some of the things that it says about Abraham and Sarah, their, their faithfulness. But I, I do find it interesting that as you go back, this is the New Testament capitulation of this couple, but um, as you go back and read the actual events in the life of Abraham and Sarah as they unfold between Genesis 12 and Genesis chapter 20, um, while there's certainly, certainly amazing examples of faith, I don't want to um, diminish that, but there are also some very notable moments where they seem to lack faith. Okay, And so somewhat ironically, and I hope um, profoundly we will see how this couple, who is most well-known in Scripture for their faith, also have a number of well-known moments of faithlessness. Okay, so with that, let's pray and we'll, we'll look into it. Father, as always, we thank you, God, for the gospel of grace that you have given to us in your son, Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. We're grateful for the community that we have with this family, God, but this body of believers is a family because of the gospel alone. And so, God, we, we praise you for it. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that's the only hope for the salvation of sinners. And now, Lord, as we come once again to the book of Genesis, this time to look at the life of Abraham, I, I pray that we would see sin more clearly and be more able to assess it in our own life as a result, particularly the sin of faithlessness, not for the sake of piling up guilt and condemnation, but for the sake of repentance and redemption and ongoing spiritual growth. While these scriptures, Lord, we're going to look at today are relatively straightforward, God, we we still need your spirit to open our eyes and connect the dots for us. No sermon, regardless of how eloquent or lengthy, can do that by itself. We need your help, God. So please help, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. As, as you might know by now, I am a, uh, I'm a Jacksonville Jaguars fan because they're my hometown team. I was born and raised in Jacksonville. And uh, while the Jags have been for many years one of the worst teams in the NFL, some recent uh, roster and coaching changes have begun to turn things around, even giving us some hope of a potential Super Bowl, being a Super Bowl contender in the future. I don't know if you're laughing at me or with me, but catch me outside. How about that? All right. Anyway, <laughs> but anyway, it's cool. It's fun to watch. But that said, I'll often go to Twitter to see what you know, people are saying about the Jaguars. And a lot of times it's, it's positive vibes, right? Excitement and cheering, uh, impressive stats and things like that. But something I've noticed is whenever we come away with a loss, or maybe you know, one of our phases, defense or offense doesn't play as well uh, in a given game, there are a lot of people who revert right back to saying things like, oh great, here we go again, right? Or see, I knew this wasn't a, a, a truly elite team. Or you know, everyone talks so good about so-and-so, but did you see that bad pass or that drop ball? They're overhyped, you know, or whatever. (laughs) I'm not talking about fans of other teams saying this stuff. I'm talking about Jags fans saying these things. And so, you know, they they, they want their team to grow and to 
get better, but the minute they make a mistake or you know, a few bad plays, like all teams do, right? It's as if the sky is falling and everything they wanted to believe was a lie, right? And I start with this because you know, it's one thing for non-believing people to act this way over a football game. It's another thing entirely when believers do this in their walk with the Lord. Going along in faith, so long as things are good, but then throwing their hands up or stressing out the minute their circumstances get a little bit tough or things don't go the way they want or expect. This is faithlessness. This is faithlessness. To define it more clearly, faithlessness is a forgetful lapse of trust and the perfect providence of God by otherwise faithful people. Okay, that's going to be our working definition for faithlessness. A forgetful lapse of trust in the perfect providence of God by otherwise faithful people. And you might think to yourself, okay, you know, Tad, I mean, sure, but isn't this just struggling? You know, isn't this just kind of the normal Christian life? Why, why preach a sermon on, on this? And to that, I would say, yes, to, to some degree, uh, this is a normative experience in the Christian life to struggle from time to time with trusting the Lord. But we still need to call it what it is. We still need to call it what it is. Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And the reason for that, I think, is what's said in Romans 14 by the Apostle Paul, who says, anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. That's a Wow, like drawing that straight line there, right? I mean, it's, it's eye-opening. Anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. You see, because here's the thing. The Jacksonville Jaguars are a work in progress. I love my team. They do make mistakes. Sometimes they don't play as well as they should or as they're capable of, and so maybe they need some constructive criticism, need to tighten things up a little bit in uh, certain areas, but not so with God. You following me? Not, not so with God. God is perfect. He does not make mistakes, not with his timing and not with our circumstances. Proverbs 16.4 says, God has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Romans 11 says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. In the Old Testament book of Job, Job presumes to faithlessly complain to God about what's happening in his life, some difficult circumstances, and so he's you know, taking that up with God. And something, I don't know if you've read Job, but something really scary happens at the end of Job. Um, God answers him directly, and uh, it's not exactly a happy answer. And God, you know, God certainly doesn't apologize to Job as though it were possible for God to somehow need the forgiveness of human beings, right? No, God says, you want to question me, Job? How about this? Put your big boy pants on because I'm going to be asking the questions now, right? 
Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Can you help me understand, Job, how the weather's controlled? How about the regulation of the the animal kingdom? Tell me all about it, Job. Tell me about it, since clearly you think I need your wisdom about how to govern the details of the universe that I have created. You must have been there at the beginning, huh? You, oh great fault finder who who argues with the Almighty. That's my paraphrase. You can read it for yourself at the end of Job if you like. Um, It's maybe even more sarcastic than that, actually. You might be surprised. And uh, it's followed by Job's response, which is, I have messed up. (laughs) I repent in dust and ashes, Lord. I'm sorry, right? And so you see, while forgetful lapses on our part, right? Forgetting who God is and who we are in relationship to him, that his sovereign rule over our lives is perfect. While it's pretty normal for believers, otherwise faithful people, to forget these things and be faithless right from time to time, it's still sin. It's still sin. The, the commonness of a sin does not decrease the severity of that sin. The commonness of a sin does not decrease the severity of that sin. Everyone does it is not a reason to excuse it as no big deal. So I would suggest that we need to do our, our best to understand faithlessness so that we can identify it in ourselves when it's there and so we can repent and get back onto the path of faith that is trusting God to, to be God. Okay. Um, and in order to do this, it just so turns out uh, that Abraham, the father of faith, as I said earlier, also happens to be a, a really great model for faithlessness. Okay. Um, I'd like to point out three situations in Abraham and his wife Sarah's life together that really um, exemplify a particular category of faithlessness um, that we too likely fall into uh, if we're not mindful uh, of it. That said, in order to do this, it will require you to have a bit of context. So let me just give that to you if you're not familiar with the storyline of Genesis. Uh, Basically, here's how it goes. Uh, After Adam and Eve fall into sin, the world grows incredibly wicked to the point that God determines to start over. He does that with Noah, who we talked about last week with the the flood and the ark. And after the flood, it turns out that um, you can't wash sin off, right? So people are still sinful. And so they they try to band together in in their pride to build a tower to heaven. This is the Tower of Babel. You know that one? God comes down, right? He comes down to see that little endeavor. And because he doesn't appreciate it, he splits up uh, the people's languages, which causes them to spread out across the world like they really were supposed to do in the first place. And at this point, um, things are pretty messed up again. Things are pretty messed up again. So God calls another man to take the mission forward, and that man is named Abram. Okay? And so God says to Abram, up and leave your home, Abram, and your family, because I want to bless you, and I want to bless all the families of the earth through you. I'm going to direct you to a land that I'm going to give to your descendants, but um, don't worry about where it is yet. Just just go, 
and I'll give you direction as you go. And uh, Abram is already 75 years old at this point. Imagine that. So this is a pretty big ask, not to mention the part about his descendants. You should know Abram's wife, Sarai, is barren. So they have no children at that point. But amazingly, Abram obeys God anyway in faith. Anyhow, there's a lot of details to the story, so I encourage you to read it for yourself if you haven't. But long story short, God tells Abram that kings and nations are going to come from his family line and his descendants will be as numerous as the stars. But there's just one little detail that God doesn't disclose to Abram up front, that it's going to be 25 years from this initial point before God gives Abram the son that he needs in order to start his family. Uh, And and it's in that 25-year waiting period that we see these three examples of faithlessness. So let me go ahead and give them to you, and we'll talk about each one. It's unbelief and the promises of God, attempting to fulfill God's plan by your own means, and living in fear. Okay? If you didn't get all that, it's okay. We'll run through them here, okay? These are not in chronological order, so we'll jump around a bit. Let's, Let's go number one, unbelief. And the promises of God. In Genesis chapter 18, after they had already been following the Lord and, and waiting on the fulfillment of the promised son for a long time, the Lord appears to Abram. Uh, by the way, you should know Abram means exalted father. And in the midst of Abram's waiting, God changes his name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. But anyway, he and Sarah are getting quite old at this point. And no doubt they're starting to wonder how things are going to go from barren with no children to a multitude that includes nations. How's that going to happen? But anyway, the Lord appears to Abraham, and he's talking to him, and and listen to how, how it goes. In Genesis 18, it says, The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son." But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. (laughs) So it's not difficult to see what, what happened here, is it? Because of how long they had had to wait from their perspective, Sarah and Abraham had clearly begun to doubt and even disbelieve the promise that God had made to them. So Sarah, who is eavesdropping on the conversation, laughs quietly to herself as, um, you know, as this expression of her unbelief. And, and even though she doesn't probably do it out loud enough to hear, the Lord doesn't need to hear it audibly in order to know her heart, which before we get into specifics, this is a good reminder in today's conversation, as well as this entire series, that the Lord is always fully aware of what's going on in our hearts that it's really best to just deal with it because there's no hiding it, not from him. 
Anyway, I, I don't know what you're going through, but I, I know the Bible is relevant. And I know there's nothing new under the sun. So, so maybe there are some in here who feel like, maybe you feel like you've been waiting on the Lord, just like Abraham and Sarah. Perhaps there's something you've been praying for for a long time, the salvation of a loved one, a better job opportunity, or a promotion, or a spouse, or a baby. But whatever it is, you're, you're in, you've inwardly just kind of given up. Because you feel like the Lord has forgotten you, or isn't really listening. Kind of like Abraham and Sarah, you haven't ditched out altogether. You're still in church. But if you're honest, you're starting to be a little bit skeptical. Not that there is a God, but that he's actually intimately aware of you, and that he cares, and that he's going to answer. Friends, this is unbelief in the promises of God. It's faithlessness. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, Your father knows what you need before you ask him. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, If You then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? One of my favorite, in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him Graciously give us all things. So church, don't let faithlessness take up residence in your heart. God's promises are trustworthy. As I already mentioned earlier, God came through for Abraham and Sarah. He was 100. She was 90. It wasn't just that it slipped God's mind either. It didn't just slip God's mind for a couple decades, like, oh, oops, I forgot I need to give them a son. No, God is doing things in us. God is growing us. He's maturing us as we wait for him in faith. And so his timing is often a lot different than what we would like. But he always delivers. He always delivers on his promises. He always answers us. He has not forgotten you. He cares for you more than you can even imagine. So keep trusting him. Keep trusting him. Before we move on, I just feel like I need to say this too. Maybe as I read those promises to you from the Gospels and and Romans, there was like like a flicker of hope in you for a moment where other, otherwise you'd started to feel pretty cynical. Let me just remind you, if you're not going to the source of God's promises, it's a lot more likely that you're going to be struggling to believe them, right? Because you're likely just forgetting them altogether. Much unbelief in our time, church, is the result not of insufficient or deficient promises, but of neglecting to go to the word where they can be found. Romans 10 says, Faith comes 
from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. You can't trust and cling to what you don't know. And what you're not hearing. What you're not being reminded of. So the marathon of faith, guys, the marathon of faith that we're in is already challenging enough. Don't handicap yourself in the fight by isolating yourself from God's promises. That's a surefire way to wind up in unbelief. Maybe even scoffing, rolling your eyes at the thought of God coming through for you, like Sarah did. So that's the first form of faithlessness. And honestly, um, it's the most blatant form, which is why I gave it first. The next two are a little more subtle than that, okay? The second one is attempting to fulfill God's plan by our own means. Attempting to fulfill God's plan by our own means. Now, this is pretty wild. In the midst of their waiting, there came a point where Abraham and Sarah determined that maybe, maybe God just needed a little human ingenuity, creativity on their part for how to fulfill his promise to them of an heir, of a son, right? So, so here's, let me share with you the plan they came up with. Um, in Genesis 16, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. You know what that means? Okay. I expect that you do. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, sorry, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So Sarah, growing impatient as her trust in the Lord is dwindling, looks around and decides, since she has a young, likely fertile servant girl, that they'll just do a weird love triangle surrogacy thing where Abraham sleeps with Hagar. And then in a roundabout way, since Hagar belongs to Sarah, her baby will just belong to Sarah too. In situations like this, they help you understand the sermon series graphic with all the shocked, embarrassed, grimacing faces in the title. That's messed up because that's messed up. Um, It doesn't take a Bible scholar to grasp how wrong on multiple levels and faithless this scenario is, does it? The narrative doesn't outright tell us that what Abraham and Sarah did here was wrong, but we have a conscience and we have enough context clues, okay? First of all, I want you to notice that um, Abraham and Sarah do not consult the Lord on this. Red flag number one. <laughs> they just concoct this half-baked plan out of whole cloth. Verse two says, 
Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah, which harkens back. There's another situation like this, isn't there? In the garden, the sinful passivity of Adam, who listened to his wife when she was in sin. Second, we learn from Jesus in the New Testament that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And did you catch what Sarah said to Abraham? The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. That's a, I mean, you could read right over that, but that's a pretty bitter accusation of the one who was doing so much for them, isn't it? Here's red flag number two. Third, and perhaps most obviously, the whole taking of another wife thing is just icky, right? Um, That's the least I could say about that, not just because of the sexual piece of it, but also the slavery piece of it. There was no written law yet at this point, but regardless, this whole plan just feels wrong. And finally, we see that uh, big surprise here, Abraham being intimate with another woman and having a child with her causes relational tension within the family. Go figure, right? So hopefully this paints a picture for you of what it looks like when we attempt to fulfill the Lord's plan or what we think the Lord's plan is by our own means. It usually starts, guys, with a lack of prayer, lack of seeking the will of God via the scriptures. Also, if you listen closely, it usually is accompanied by some language that indicates a loss of faith in the Lord to do what you think needs to be done. Now, it would be really challenging for me to give you a comprehensive list of how we still do this today, but I'll tell you, it usually involves us thinking that our life doesn't look the way that we think it should. Notice the terms I'm using there. usually involves us thinking our life doesn't look the way that we think it should. Our expectations have led to disappointment. Maybe we're not making as much money as we'd like, and so we make a rash decision to switch jobs. Or all our friends are getting married, and so we get in a hurry to find a spouse, too. Or, you know, our lifestyle isn't what we want, and so, uh, you know, we make some unwise decisions and get ourselves into a bunch of debt. Maybe our church family isn't perfect. None of them are, but our church family isn't perfect, and so we decide to jump ship for another one. Or maybe, you know, we're just in a season of feeling dry or discontent in general, so we decide we're going to, you know, make a move to a new place looking for a change of scenery purely for the sake of novelty, right? But the idea here is that we take matters into our own hands, we make some hasty decisions, and we totally bypass spiritual examination. Instead of prayer and looking to the word and seeking out godly counsel from people who will tell us the truth, we avoid all that. We just think, oh, I'm not happy because I don't have fill in the blank. So I'll contrive a plan in the flesh to get blank on my own. Because surely God wants me to be happy, right? 
Couldn't possibly be that the Lord is teaching me to wait on him or that he has some plan that I don't even know about yet. Nah. And so we faithlessly take a Hagar and we sinfully make an Ishmael only to realize after the fact that the grass is not greener on the other side because God did not even intend for us to go to the other side. That was the plan we came up with, without him. And so he doesn't bless it. And ultimately, we wind up just as discontent, if not more, than before. This is attempting to fulfill God's plan by our own means. It didn't stop after Abraham and Sarah did that in Genesis 16. It's still happening today. As I said, it's, it's often subtle, especially for us as Americans with a lot of freedom, a lot of upward mobility, and a, oftentimes a skewed perspective of how happy we should be all the time, right? Church, we, we will search in vain for the verse that affirms our perceived need to be happy with the circumstances of our life all the time. The quest for constant comfort. This is a first world secular concept, not a first century Christian concept. In fact, Jesus tells us that in order to follow him, we need to die to ourselves. That doesn't sound fun. And take up our cross, he says, right? So a lot of times, again, I need to say, this form of faithlessness happens from a lack of biblical literacy, right? And so really what happens is we're not even really trying to fulfill God's plan. We just assume we can make our own plan and that God will give it the rubber stamp, right? Because if we're honest... In our Disney theology, we treat God more like a genie whose job it is to grant all our wishes than our sovereign Lord, who we're supposed to humbly commit our full allegiance to. So, forms of faithlessness. Overt unbelief in the promises of God. Attempting to fulfill God's plan by our own means, a little more subtle. And the third form of faithlessness we're prone to succumb to is living in fear. Living in fear. We see two instances where Abraham does this, and ironically, he does exactly the same thing both times. Uh, In a nutshell, as he's traveling to the land that God is going to show him, he has to pass through the lands of other nations. And in these two situations, one in Genesis 12 and one in Genesis 20, Abraham lies to Pharaoh and Abimelech, the kings of those nations, and he lies by saying that his wife is actually his sister. Apparently, Sarah is very beautiful, even in her old age, and so Abraham assumes that if he tells the truth and says that she's his wife, the kings will kill him and take her. Funny enough, when he lies, says she's his sister, they take her anyway. Both times. And both times, God warns the kings and they give Sarah back to Abraham. It's kind of ironic. They're offended that Abraham would lie about that, you know. Um, 
But anyway, uh, and just, just like the other forms of faithlessness, <laughs> we do this too, don't we? we? We do this too. Instead of carrying ourselves with a measure of godly confidence, after seeing how faithful and kind God is to care for us and to often protect us, at the first sign of something scary or difficult, we fearfully hatch ways to try to protect ourselves. Maybe, by, maybe it's by bending the truth, just like Abraham. Maybe you tell you know, little white lies to your boss or your spouse or your friends who really care about you. And you do it in fear that if you tell the truth, the Lord won't honor it, even though his word says he will. Or maybe the way you live in fear has to do with money. You've gone beyond frugality over into greed and selfishness. You're not a generous person because you're afraid that if you're generous, you won't have enough. Even though God says that he blesses the generous with more. Or maybe the way you live in fear is pretty common in our society. It has to do with politics. You're not just reading the news because you want to be in the know, but because you've grown obsessed with the ideology of a politician or a political party. And so rather than spending your time getting to know the true king and living for him, you're consumed with and you're on the edge of your seat about what's happening in the temporary kingdoms of this world. But however it might look in your life, fear, too, is a subtle form of faithlessness that only those who are thinking in biblical categories will be able to see in themselves. Because as fallen human beings, fear is our natural MO. Fear is our natural MO. And it's in direct opposition to faith. When we make even seemingly small decisions in fear, trying to protect ourselves or manipulate our circumstances in a way that's favorable for us, what we're doing is we're saying with our actions that we don't trust the God of the universe to take care of us and to protect us like he says he will. That's fear. That's living in fear. (laughs) Sounds so silly when we say it like that, doesn't it? Really, I'm not downplaying sin when I say this, but, but all of these episodes of faithlessness have a degree of silliness to them, don't they? Not silly like funny per se, but silly like ridiculous. Because for the believer, lapses in faith are ridiculous. They are ridiculous. We know who God is. We know what he's capable of. Anything, right? We see all that he has done for the saints who have gone before us. We even see his reliable track record in our own lives. And yet, in our remaining sinfulness, we forget. We revert back to trusting ourselves, as though that ever got us anywhere good. (laughs) And if you're anything like me, as you roll these three examples around in your mind, you just can't help but admit that you've done them all. If that's true, then stay with me, because I want to close now with three encouragements for you. Here's the first one. The goodness and grace of God are hard to believe. (laughs) 
The goodness and grace of God are hard to believe. I'm not saying this to go back on anything I've said, certainly not to place the blame on God for the sinfulness of our lapses in faith. I'm saying that the gospel is so amazingly good. God's grace for sinners like us is so extravagant. God's level of care for us, his promises to help us and strengthen us and be with us until the very end, it's not easy to wrap our minds around that. And so I think what you wind up seeing with men and women in the Bible is like Abraham, they, they may trust God initially in some big ways, but it really takes a lifetime for them to grow into people who trust him consistently, right? And God knows that. God knows that. He knows we need grace even to grow in our grasp of his grace. (laughs) That's how much grace we need, and God knows that. So for men and women who realize how much they falter in their reliance on him, Psalm 103 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. That said, spoiler alert, every week in this series on sin and redemption, part of the application is going to be repentance. Okay, Every week. Because the opportunity to repent for our sin is a huge aspect of God's grace. God would be perfectly just to only give us one chance. But thankfully in Christ, God's mercies are new every morning. And so if you recognize that you have had a lapse in faith, or that there's some pattern of faithlessness that crops up in your life, I encourage you, friend, to repent with the famous words of the man in Mark 9, 24, who says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. That's my first encouragement to you. My second is simply to remind you that Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. In Matthew 14, there's this very famous story of Jesus walking on water where Peter, arguably the the leader of Jesus' disciples and one of the Bible's most famous falterers in faith, asks to come out and to walk to Jesus on the water. And Jesus lets him. But what happens He gets out of the boat, he walks to Jesus, and in Matthew 14, verse 30, it says, but when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. But Jesus just let him sink because of his faithlessness. No. Jesus reached out his hand, and he pulled Peter out, and he said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? (laughs) This is a picture, church, of how Jesus graciously and progressively perfects our faith over time. 
We walk in faith. We sink in faithlessness. He pulls us out. And he reminds us that we have no reason to not trust him. Over and over and over and over again. Right? So, encouragement for those who falter in their faith. The goodness and grace of God are hard to believe. Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And finally, the most encouraging one of all, I think, is that saving faith forms an unbreakable covenant, securely sealed by the blood of Christ. Saving faith forms an unbreakable covenant, securely sealed by the blood of Christ. My hope, guys, is that you leave rejoicing in this truth today. Okay, That while... It's not only possible, but likely that you will have many moments in your walk with Jesus where you falter or doubt or try to take things into your own hands or respond in fear. For those who have truly placed their faith in Jesus, no moment or season of faithlessness is strong enough to break your union with Christ. No moment or season of faithlessness is strong enough to break your union with Christ. Let me tell you why. There's a lot of reasons, but I'm going to give this one because I really like this one. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul gives this helpful little uh, if-then rundown, right? He says, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with Christ, we'll also live with him. If we endure... We'll also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So you see, he's distinguishing for us two categories here. All-out denial of Christ and momentary lapses in our faith. In Christ. He's saying, yes, if you don't accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and commit to live for him, then he will deny you in turn. Because salvation is by faith alone. But, he says, this idea of being faithless is not the same thing as denial. Praise God. Jesus saves occasionally faithless people. And Paul says, get this now, he remains faithful to us, not because we deserve it, but because he cannot deny himself. That is because Christ has made a covenant with us by his own blood. He upholds that covenant, not based on our merit, but on the grounds of his own faithfulness to save sinners. I love this quote from 17th century Scottish pastor Samuel Rutherford. He says, Often, I have in my folly 
torn up my copy of God's covenant with me. But blessed be his name. He keeps it in heaven safe, and he stands by it always. What a wonderful truth for those who love Jesus and who trust Jesus with an imperfect love and a trust that sometimes falters. If that's you, brother or sister, take heart. He will not cast you off because he cannot deny himself. He will not. No matter how many copies of the covenant that you manage to tear up, he's got the original. And it's signed and sealed with his own blood. So as we close today, what better way to do it than to take the Lord's Supper that represents that unbreakable covenant? When we partake in this ordinance and obedience to Jesus, we are celebrating the good news of the great exchange, this great gospel exchange, that Jesus stood before the wrath of God as though he were sinful, like us, so that we can now stand before God, righteous and blameless, like him. The juice represents Jesus' blood poured out for us. The bread, his body, broken for us on the cross. As we eat and drink, we do so not because there is any special grace imparted to us in these physical elements themselves, but as an ongoing symbolic act of faith, declaring that our hope is built on nothing more and nothing less than Jesus' blood and Jesus' righteousness. If that's true, For you today, friend, faithless as you may be at times, we invite you to the Lord's table. Let's pray. Father, God, I am a faithless man at times, and I am preaching to an often faithless people. God, we believe Please help our unbelief, God. God, as we look to these examples of Abraham, I pray that we would see by your spirit, that you would open up our eyes, God, to see how we are so like him. We're so like Sarah. We often don't believe your promises. We often grow weary. We try to take matters into our own hands and make things work out the way that we think they're supposed to, God. Or we just live and do things out of fear, not faith. Father, I just pray this morning that not only would we see it, but God, that we would repent. We would repent. And that we would find joy in repentance and restoration. Being reminded, God, that this covenant that you have made by your blood is unbreakable. That you won't cast us off, even though we are often faithless because you can't deny yourself, God. We thank you for that. We thank you for 
the assurance of salvation that that is to us. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.